Welcome to the Grumpy Economist podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Grumpy Economist is John Cochran, the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist blog. So, John, we learned today, earlier in the day that we're recording this, that the number of unemployment filings last week was 5.2 million people. That pushes the unemployment numbers over this period with the coronavirus all the way up to 22 million. So these are just these are staggering numbers. That is roughly the same number of jobs created during the entire recovery from the last recession. And yet, you do hear a lot of qualifiers that make this harder to understand for the layperson. There is some speculation, for instance, that a lot of these people are not permanently unemployed in the way that we'd normally think of it, that their employers are saying, well, you're not getting paid right now, go collect the benefits, and then there'll be a job waiting for you when we get back closer to normal, which doesn't sound so bad. On the other hand, I'll just note a grim milestone on those little push notifications you get on your phone. Today was the first time that I saw a major news outlet use the D word. The Washington Post reported these unemployment numbers as labor market tumbles closer to depression levels. So this is all moving so fast that there's obviously a fog of war quality about it. But what do we know and what don't we know about the current state of the labor market? How should we be thinking about this? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, I think there's a lot of uh, unknown unknowns in the <laughs> famous categorization. Uh, I think some of, to, to digest these numbers, uh, some of the different possibilities are worth keeping in mind. Yes, especially with the very generous unemployment insurance uh, out there, um, what, what we're kind of doing to keep people afloat, uh, Europe is paying companies to keep people on the payroll. We're paying people to not work. Uh, so there's lots of, uh, we're hearing lots of stories of companies and workers basically saying, hey guys, uh, we don't have any work for you here. Uh, go take the unemployment for the government for a while. And then uh, we'll we'll come back. And and if that's true, that's in some sense good news, um, because it means that that tie of employer to job is still there. And when business comes back, they'll be ready to go back. Now, uh, is the company still going to be there? Is a good question. Uh, so um, that doesn't guarantee everything's going to be fine. You know the. the how soon before airlines are flying big schedules again? It's not just going to be a couple months. Uh, restaurants, uh, many of the small businesses are, are are going to be gone. So that's not that's the uh, other side of that. Another other side of that is, normally unemployment insurance means uh, you're supposed to be out looking for work. Uh, clearly, the concept here is is not out looking for work. It's just waiting for things to reopen. Um, but I do think we have to start thinking forwards to the recovery aspect of this. And I am worried that some of the policies put in place now will slow down the recovery. Uh, if, if your job is not there anymore, we want you eventually to be looking for a new job. And, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, being on very generous unemployment um, uh, that doesn't require you to look for work as much as it doesn't, we'll, we'll, we'll slow that down. There's, there's also a lot of... Um, you know, the other sort of good news, the other news of what's going on here is there's a lot of shift in demand, not just less total demand. Um, so, you know, we would like people who used to work at restaurants who may be shut down uh, to go take a job at Amazon who is hiring uh, or, uh, you know, there's lots of jobs going to be for a while in the, in the cleanup and security and so forth department. 
Um, so so uh, we'd like people to take those jobs. And this kind of happened in the last uh, recession. Lots of people just kind of stayed on unemployment insurance until the 99th week. And that uh, that really, I think, slowed down the recovery. So there's there's good and bad in this, like in everything. I'm an economist. <laughs> <laughs> so... This next question actually disquiets me a bit because you and I just did a show a week ago in any world in which you've got to check in every week to see whether the economy is going to hang in there. It's not a great one to be in. So uh, you mentioned you know the road towards recovery there a moment ago. As a lot of our listeners may know or may now be learning, there are different shapes of recessions and recoveries. And when we say shapes, they're all named after letters, and, and that's denoting the shape they resemble when you graph them out visually. So you and I have talked here before about about a V-shaped recession where you kind of slide sharply down and then bounce sharply back up. But people are now hearing about U-shaped recessions, about L-shaped recessions. Can you just give us sort of a, a layman's taxonomy of these, both in terms of what they mean, but probably more importantly, what variables are likely to determine which of these worlds we end up in? Yeah. Uh, and again, I think one would be dishonest not to say there's great uncertainty about what's going to happen. The, the V-shaped idea, it was called almost humorously uh, a month or so ago when one could be humorous about these things, the Great Vacation. Uh, the economy does have a V-shaped recession every uh, you know Christmas through New Year's. Nothing gets done, and then we all go back to work on January 2nd. Um, and that is, in some sense, what, what could and should happen here. Uh, we're turning things off to stop a virus. Uh, if the debt clock could be stopped, then the, you know, we, we sound the all clear and we'll all get going again. I don't think biology and public health is going to allow that. Um, we're not going to get an all clear because we don't have either a, um, a, a, a very well worked out testing, tracking public health system or uh, magic tests and vaccines that stop this in its tracks. So um, what looks very likely to happen is limited reopenings. Uh, it's not just the government. It's also uh, a private unwillingness. Uh, you know, even if the government said the lockdown's over, you and I aren't getting on airplanes and going to crowded bars anytime soon, even if they let us. <clears throat> so uh, in, in the absence of the vaccine of a daily test every American can take and of a robust, well-worked-out public health uh, way to handle this, uh, this disease, which will still be with us, uh, you know, little embers here. Uh, that points to U-shaped recovery. Um, that there's that there's a long sort of half-open period, and then L-shaped is is the uh, the worst of the possibilities. That we have this enormous fall in uh, output, jobs, uh, businesses, <clears throat> and then uh, uh, things stay low and don't recover. Um, uh, I was. Uh, hopeful for V or V-shaped recovery in 2008, and I was wrong. Um, we had an L-shaped recovery then. Uh, the recession came on pretty swiftly, not as swift as this one, and then just stayed there for years and years, very slow uh, return of jobs and, and output. Uh, now, in, in that case, as I think in this case, um, we've sort of discovered there's lots of regulatory disincentives in the U.S. to getting things going, to starting new companies, to taking new jobs. Uh, so public policy certainly will either unleash uh, a great get back to work or it will have all sorts of disincentives and regulations to stop people from starting new businesses and getting back to work. 
And the L shape is also more likely if the recession leads to um, financial collapse uh, or equivalent, you know, if a lot of businesses are liquidated, bankruptcy ain't so bad, liquidation is bad. And you're reading stories about restaurants now where people just say, well, you know, that's it. Give the, give the, uh, give the stove back to the bank, uh, move, move away, and that, that business is gone. Uh, and, and the employees don't have their tie to that business. Those kinds of starting up new businesses in place of old businesses and finding new employees with the right skills takes time. And so that, too, could lead to L-shaped recovery. When we think about these intermediate steps and sort of get back to kind of half normal, as the, as the case may be, uh, you mentioned earlier you know, testing and, and tracking, and one of the developments that a lot of people in America have pointed to with some hope has been the experience of some of these Asian countries that have put in um, pretty sweeping sort of detection systems with lots of implementation of tech to try and trace contacts between people who are infected. And that prospect has been raised for here in the United States. A lot of people are enthusiastic about it, but... Uh, it does cut against a lot of American priors around civil liberties. I, I wonder how you think about the, the balance of those factors. Yeah, uh, as usual, America, we're heading into this completely unprepared. Everyone says, uh, oh, the tests will come and that will uh, save everything. Wait a minute here. <laughs> Even if we had tests, uh, you need a robust, detailed, and competent uh, public health bureaucracy to know what to do with the tests. Uh, in some sense, we have tests now. We have take your temperature, <laughs> uh, which we're not using. We have web-enabled thermometers, which we could be using, and we're not. Uh, in in uh, countries before the, the DNA tests were invented, uh, China was just shipping people in for CAT scans. Hey, well, let's look at your lungs. Oh, it looks like you got this. You, you know, you don't need a... Uh, perfectly accurate DNA test to tell what you have. So, you know, what are you going to do with the answers of those tests is a big question. Uh, and uh, the apps is a similar, there's lots of gee whiz. It's interesting that uh, our, our tech companies are just now starting to develop apps that could help, uh, even though those things are in place in uh, places like South Korea last January. We could just buy them. But... Um, so uh, it sounds wonderful, tests, apps, uh, and, and then rather than shutting down the economy, a public health response can do what public health does, find where this is, uh, test who's got it, trace their contacts, quarantine, and so forth. And that is, I think, hopeful in that that means we don't have to shut down the economy, which is just a tremendous disaster. But I don't think... Uh, people talking about this recognize um, the final point you got to, just how intrusive it is of our civil liberties. Right now, our economic liberties are being trampled, so don't. It's it's not a freedom question, uh, and of Americans willing to go along with it, and of the competence of our public health bureaucracy to implement the kind of uh, detailed rules and procedures that this takes. And the last one, I'm, I, don't, I don't think we have to worry about our civil liberties because I, I don't think they have the beginnings of the competence to do something with uh, this data. But let's think about what this means. Um, you go in and get a test. Right now, that test under the HIPAA uh, Act is your own personal information. No one can do anything with that test. Well, obviously, if there's going to be a public health thing, somebody's got to know uh, you got this test and where you live and then 
contact tracing. You got to tell them everyone you've talked to, or we're going to download data from your cell phone and find out where you've been. And then, um, you know, everyone you've talked to uh, gets a call saying, hey, you've been exposed. Well, first of all, on the civil liberties, the regulation of civil liberties, and we don't allow that, so you got to allow that to happen. Uh, and I don't think Americans are going to be terribly happy about getting a call from their local public health office that says, oh, you know, you shared an Uber. Well, you don't do that anymore. Where were you? <laughs> you were seen crossing a street on your cell phone app next to somebody who had this. We want you to stay home and not talk to anyone for two weeks. Uh, people are going to say the heck with that. Another thing that happens in a robust public health, uh, we got to use data to find the hotspots and lock them down while letting other people open. That seems perfectly reasonable. And, you know, there's a lot of the country that says, I live out here in South Dakota. We haven't seen uh, anyone from San Francisco or New York in a long time. No one's got it here. Why do we have to stay home? Uh, yeah, right. But that means uh, you got to monitor travel and not let outsiders in. <laughs> Where there is a hot spot, you got to not let people out. So, you know, how happy are the fine citizens of Palo Alto going to be if uh, it's discovered that there was a, a birthday, an illegal birthday party here that led to an outbreak? We know it's kind of out in Palo Alto. You guys have, you know, five per thousand, whereas one per thousand is the Stanford standard. Nobody from Palo Alto gets to leave uh, for the next uh, two to three weeks um, uh, or... Uh, you know, already you're not allowed to go to your house in Tahoe, Mr. Palo Alto. Uh, you know, are we really ready for roadblocks where people from certain areas are not allowed to travel, um, uh, you know, depending on apps and so forth? So this is, um, that's how public health works. Uh, that's how you use uh, tests and, uh, and data to stop an outbreak. And that's how you let an economy stay open in places where it can stay open but it is intrusive of your civil liberties. It's intrusive of, uh, you know, uh, of your sense of common sense. Uh, you may say, you know, somebody on your block had it, so you're not allowed to leave. Well, you're going to go, what the heck with that? Uh, I know I didn't talk to Joe down the street who has it. If you're allowed to know it was Joe down the street, which you probably won't be. And, uh, you know, you run into the police, the, the barricades. China has barricades around apartment buildings. Nobody allowed in or out with security guards. Are we going to do that? Well, that's the price of reopening the economy. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't think we have the competence to do it. We're just beginning to start with the apps that take it. And then the hard issues of, uh, are, is this actually going to work? Um, that's what it's going to be what it takes to reopen the economy before some magic tech or a vaccine comes along. Uh, and I, we're, we're unprepared in 100 different ways for it. I want to turn as we reach the end here to the financial dimensions of this, and you've got a tour de force analysis of this up at the Grumpy Economist. But for the lay listener, and honestly, even for someone like me who's been working in and around public policy for 20 years, when we start wading into the Fed and monetary policy, it can all seem a bit like witchcraft. So I'm going to ask you to do the Fed, the Fed for English majors. And, and let me start with this point. You have used the phrase on a few of our recent episodes and on the blog that the government is printing money. And, and I worry that some of our listeners have grown numb to that formulation because it is a rhetorical trope that people, particularly limited government people, use in a lot of cases where the government is not actually printing money. But you mean this almost literally. There's not actual printing going on, but there, there is new money creation happening. So 
Explain what's actually going on here, where these amounts of money that are too vast for most people to wrap their heads around are actually coming from. Uh, yeah, to, to say that money is being printed is pretty darn close to accurate. Um, so with the, uh, you know, the airline bailout that was announced this morning or the various, you know, the small business lending programs, um, the, uh, the, the, the $1,200 stimulus checks, um, the, the vast array of Fed propping up uh, um, bond prices here, there, and everywhere. Where is this money actually coming from? And right now, uh, the Fed is creating it out of thin air. Uh, the way our system works, uh, banks have accounts at the Fed called reserves, and banks are allowed, uh, if you have a $1,000 account at the Fed, you're allowed to, the bank is allowed to get cash, just like a huge ATM machine. So these are, it's the equivalent of cash. The Fed is not literally printing money, uh, but the Fed simply says, uh, if it wants to make a loan uh, to an airline, the Fed simply uh, says um, to the airline's bank, the Fed flips a switch and uh, creates a $1,000 account that that bank has at the Fed, and the bank then creates a $1,000 uh, in the account of the airline. So the, the airline got the $1,000, and where did it come from? The Fed simply flipped a switch and said that the account at the Fed is $1,000 bigger than it used to be. And uh, that is equivalent to printing cash in the sense that if anybody actually wants physical cash, uh, they have the right to get it. People don't bother because accounts at the Fed are so much more convenient than actual physical cash. That's where it's coming from. Um, uh, and so that's where we are. Uh, these accounts pay interest. Uh, the uh, reserves at the Fed pay interest. So it is not instantly inflationary as printing like five trillion dollars of cash might be. Um, but I think it's worth emphasizing that's what's going on. Uh, the Treasury is not right now borrowing $5 trillion because there aren't people out there with $5 trillion to give to the Treasury. Um, so that's the, the blog post mostly went through the mechanics just to understand that fact. That this, is, this isn't criticism of the current system. Uh, but that just is where we are, and that's where the money comes, is coming from. I'm going to be a little more critical in upcoming blog posts of the whole business. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to the Grumpy Economist podcast with John Cochran. You can read the Grumpy Economist blog at johnhcochran.blogspot.com. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For John Cochran, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.